0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Alex Castle. I'm manager of public programs here, and we're really thrilled to welcome all of you tonight to our uh, beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, I want to mention some of our exhibitions that are on right now. We have uh, the Hirschfeld Century which uh, looks at nine decades of Al Hirschfeld's work. We also, on the second floor, have our Picasso Le Tricorn exhibition, as well as the Freedom Journey 1965, which looks at the Selma to Montgomery March fo- photographs if, in conjunction with the 50th anniversary of that. And then also we have some upcoming exhibitions which I wanted to point out as well. We have Superheroes in Gotham's opening on October 9th. Um, and then we also have Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, which is opening on November 13th, both of which which we are planning a very exciting array of public programs and film screenings. So uh, if you don't have a brochure, please pick up a copy on your way out today uh, to take a look. And for those of you who are not members, we do want to encourage that you do join. Uh, Your membership would very much help us with uh, our mission and and, uh, also help us produce these wonderful array of programs that we do. So uh, I do encourage that as well. Tonight's program, Being Nixon, A Man Divided, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent historians and authors to this institution. So thank you, Mr. Schwartz. And. And I'd also like to just recognize and thank our trustees and members of our Chairman's Council who are with us tonight for their great work and support. And uh, also there's a a student group with us tonight as well, a a politics group uh, from Sarah Lawrence College, so I just wanted to welcome them as well. It's always nice to have uh, students come join us in our audience, so thank you very much for coming. Um, so tonight's program is going to last an hour. There's going to be time for a question and answer session. There's going to be two microphones that are brought out to the aisles here, and uh, we ask that you line up behind the microphones when that time comes and uh, ask your questions and speak into the microphones. And we do this so that everyone in the audit audience can hear you as well as the speakers on stage. And also, some of these programs, and tonight included, are recorded for podcasts. So uh, that way, everything will be recorded for the podcast and included on that as well. So um, also afterwards, there's going to be a book signing in our museum, uh, in our Smith Gallery. It's out on the Central Park West side of the building. Uh, books are for sale in our museum store. The museum store is on our 77th Street side of the building. So you're, uh, we invite everyone, of course, and we hope that you all stay for that as well. So tonight we are so pleased to welcome Evan Thomas, the author of nine books, including Ike's Bluff, President Eisenhower's Secret Struggle to Save the World, and the New York Times bestseller, Sea of Thunder. Most recently, he's the author of Being Nixon, A Man Divided, and Mr. Thomas has worked at Newsweek where he was the Washington bureau chief before becoming assistant managing editor and later editor at large. For many years, he was Newsweek's lead writer producing more than 100 cover stories and running for the magazine's behind the scenes issue covering presidential elections. He has held positions at Harvard and Princeton University where he taught writing and journalism courses. Our moderator for the evening is Julian E. Zelitzer, the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, and the Ford Academic Fellow at the New America Foundation. He is the author and editor of 15 books on American politics, including his most recent book, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. He also publishes a popular column on CNN.com. And before we begin, of course, we just ask that everyone please silence anything that makes noise, cell phones, um, and now please join me in welcoming our guests to the stage.
1: Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with Evan, who's been one of the great chroniclers of American politics in real time uh, over the past few decades, Uh, written many important columns and works about uh, the presidency, about Washington, and has also written a number of uh, hugely influential books on key topics of the 20th century. And today we're talking about Uh, one of the most controversial figures, certainly, of the late 20th century, uh, and that is Richard Nixon, and he has a terrific book, uh, Being Nixon, which I urge all of you uh, to read, which tries to take us into the mind, into the person of this president, who remains something of a mystery, even though many people have heard more than they want. Uh, from him directly. Um, And at one point he writes, the fears and and insecurities that led him into sinfulness also gave him the drive to push past self-doubt, to pretend to be cheerful, to dare to be brave, to see often through sadly not always the light in the dark. Um, Let me start, why did you want to write a book about Richard Nixon? Uh, Nixon, it's I think the 13th book There are going to be 13 more. There are going
2: to be 20 more. We're going to be writing about Nixon forever. But I had a particular point of view. I worked for the Washington Post company for 24 years. We hated Nixon. (laughs) Uh, And I shared the conventional wisdom about him, uh, the kind of cartoon uh, version of him. But I was intrigued because I, as as a journalist, I came to realize that often the truth about people was... It's kind of a cliche, but it's true, it's more complicated. And I thought, who could be more interesting to take on than this cartoon, this vast, but cartoonish figure. And uh, it turned out to be the most fun book I ever wrote, by far, because he is such an interesting figure. I don't pretend to have cracked the code on Richard Nixon totally. I mean, I, I tried to get into his head. There's a, there are tapes, there are diaries, there are, there's lots of material but he is a complicated character. But I think I did, I know that I got beyond the kind of cartoonish version. And I think I made him a real person or I hope to.
1: And how so if he was sitting here on stage with us, um, what what kind of person would we be talking to? How would you characterize or do you characterize who this Richard Nixon is beyond Watergate and beyond what we've seen? Well, profoundly shy. I mean, one of the things that drew me was that how did somebody who was so shy, so painfully
2: shy, become one of the most successful political figures in history? And certainly in the 20th century, he was on five national tickets. He won four times. He won the last time, by one of the greatest landslides in history. How did this shy man do it? Uh, and he was really shy uh, and awkward. You would have sensed this right away. You would have seen, he might have been sweating. Uh, his eyes would have been darting around. Uh, He would have made lame jokes, uh, and he would have been ill at ease. And yet, he would have been deeply prepared. Uh, One reason why I was a successful politician is he could remember your name. That helps. He didn't just remember names. He kept files on everybody. Uh, I I learned this firsthand, actually, uh, at Newsweek. I was an editor at Newsweek he came around on his rehabilitation tour in 1988 uh, after he'd been disgraced by Watergate Nixon, characteristically, because he was such a hard driving and never easily defeated person, came around Nixon to his former torment, to Newsweek to to his former tormentors and uh, gave a little speech. And right after he came right up to me and he said, your grandfather was a great man. I am like, what? My grandfather's Norman Thomas, who was a socialist candidate for president six times. And typical Nixon, he had done his homework. He would gotten the guest lists, seen who was coming, had done a little research on everybody, and flattered me by remembering who my grandfather was. I was taken aback. I said, well, he's a a great-grandfather. I didn't know what to say. But I remembered it and was flattered by it, and a little tiny insight into how Nixon overcame his terrible shyness.
1: Why does this guy who doesn't like to speak to people or is awkward speaking with people and is not comfortable in the limelight decide to run for the house, to run for the senate, to run for the presidency? How do you put those two parts of him together? Well, a lot of actors are shy.
2: So, uh, I mean, part of that is it's, he was shy, but on a stage felt some presence and, and liked to, in fact, he liked angry, weirdly, he liked angry crowds. Uh, he, uh, he was forever, uh, he almost got killed in Caracas in, uh, in Venezuela in 1958 as mob stormed his car and the secret service man sitting next to him, Jack Sherwood pulled out his pistol and says, I'm gonna kill some of these SOBs. Nixon said, put away the gun. Don't shoot unless they start to pull me out of the car. Nixon was physically brave, uh, but he liked to defy crowds and, and, and uh, he, you know, he that famous gesture of his. Uh, <laughs> He got that from Eisenhower, who got it from Churchill. It really was V for victory in World War II. But, of course, by 1970, V is the peace sign. So Nixon liked to go into anti-war crowds going like this. He said, It really drives him crazy. And, it, you know, and, and it did. He started a riot in San Jose in 1970 by doing that. Uh, so he had the, there was a certain element of, what am I saying? There was a certain element of daring, of defiance, of, uh, I, I, I think I liken him in the book to a, to a, like a cliff diver who's afraid of heights. I mean, he just, he just sort of liked to, to, to plunge in. There was kind of excitement to
1: it. Was there a strategy there? I mean, some people who write about Nixon argue he wanted to rile up the crowds. And when he talked at the silent majority, and that was, in fact, his strategy. And he created a kind of style of politics that depended. What, was that something he thought about?
2: Yes. I, I mean, to, to do the to slightly, to slightly more benign view of mm-hmm. how this worked, yep. Nixon was an outsider. His whole life. He was a poor boy growing up in Yorba Linda. He got a scholarship to Harvard and couldn't go because he literally didn't have the money to get to Cambridge from, from, and so he went to Whittier College. He gets to Whittier, and this fascinated me. He gets to Whittier, and of course at Whittier College, there's a cool guy's fraternity, the Franklins. So Nixon starts a fraternity for the uncool guys, the <laughs> Orthogonians, because there are more of them. Basic political insight. He runs for student body president as an outsider. At Whittier, a good Quaker school, he runs on a platform of bringing dancing in, which is, makes him popular with students, of course, but it's very sly on class basis. The rich guys at, at Whittier could go off and to country clubs and to restaurants. They could have all the dances and booze they wanted. It was the poor kids who couldn't have dances. So Nixon defied the establishment and ran a we're going to have dances ticket and one student body president. He did this again and again. He understood the hopes and fears, and the fears, but the hopes of the disenfranchised. He always ran against the establishment, that famous phrase, the silent majority. Nixon made that up, 1969. And you know, it worked pretty well. Reagan gets credit for the modern Republican Party. Actually, it was Nixon in 1972. Nixon won a landslide in which he won 35% of registered Democrats. He was expert at peeling away Democratic voters who resented the New York Times or Harvard or, you know, telling them what to do. And he, he, he sensed their anxieties. He spoke for them. People sensed that he spoke for them. Now, was he cynical about this? Sometimes. Was he expedient about it? Absolutely. Was he cunning and clever about it? Yes. But I think he also felt as an outsider himself, he he related to them and people even through his shyness and even through some of his kind of stilted arrogance
1: sensed that about him. What did he learn from Lyndon Johnson?
2: Uh, Well, he and Lyndon had actually a lot in common uh, because they were both populists in their own way. They also an interesting politician's pact of mutual non-aggression. They had they kept dirt on each other, but they didn't use it. Uh, famously, uh, in 1968, uh, uh, Johnson is the outgoing president, Hubert Humphrey is the Democratic nominee, and Johnson declares a bombing pause in Vietnam on the verge of the election, and Nixon is worried that, oh my God, this is going to get Humphrey elected. Well, Nixon has a little back channel going to President Chu in South Vietnam. And Johnson, President Johnson, is eavesdropping on the South Vietnamese and finds out that Nixon, the Republican nominee, is running this little back channel to, the, to, to President Hugh. And, and Johnson says it's, quote, treason. He says Nixon is committing treason. Well, there are two things about this. One is it was pretty far out there, but it actually, and people get their Get confused about this. It didn't really make any difference because President II wasn't going to make a deal, anyways. No matter what Nixon did, II was not going to come to the table and make a deal. So, what Nixon was doing did not affect history. However, it's interesting that Johnson decided, even though he had this dirt on Nixon, decided not to use it because the tradition then was dig up dirt on the other side but don't use it, partly because it's too disruptive to the political process. Johnson understood that it would be bad for the country if he brought all this stuff out, and, and Nixon, of course, had dirt on Johnson, too, and they didn't, they, they both understood this kind of weird standoff, and they, weird, they kind of respected each other. I think William Sapphire called them, it was like two cocks circling each other, ready to peck at each other, but the warily, you know, circling each other. Uh, right before Johnson died, <laughs> Nixon wrote him a letter saying, you know, I can tell you're really stressed out. You need to relax. You going to go down to Florida and spend some time with BB Rebozo,
1: <laughs> was very relaxed. Yeah. Uh, so they had kind of a bond, even though they were political enemies. When Nixon becomes president, uh, nineteen elected in sixty-eight, uh, what did he believe in? Uh, you know, what did it mean to him to be a Republican in nineteen sixty-eight America? What did he want to fight for? He was a well. He wanted to fight against
2: the establishment even though he was the establishment. Always a tricky thing as politicians do. Uh, so he has that populist core and that's, that's sincere. Uh, he, is, he is a conservative. He doesn't like federal bureaucrats. He really hates bureaucrats and he thinks that they're on the side of the New York Times and they're liberal and so he wants to diminish the size of the bureaucrats. But this is where the story gets complicated because in order to give power back to the states and to take power away from the bureaucrats, he needs to collect power in the White House before he can give it away again. And this is where he, he was excessive. I mean, the Imperial Presidency, he drew too much power to himself. He got, and this is Nixon's character flaws coming to the fore here, his resentment of his enemies, his suspicion of the bureaucrats made him collect too much power to himself and do some ugly things. I mean, uh, uh, and this is ugly. You can listen to the tapes. And Nixon wants to count the number of Jews in the Bureau of Labor Statistics because he thinks the Jews have taken over there. And it's, you listen to this tape, and you just cannot believe it. It's so bad. It's it's just it's, it's it's cringe-making. Uh,
1: Anti-Semitism ran uh, deep.
2: Uh, well, but Nixon, I'm a. I'm always going to say this. it's complicated with Nixon. Let me just, I I, I don't mean to go on here, but it's important. You listen to him and you think he's a terrible anti-Semite on this tape. And my wife, Osi, was listening to these tapes, and I could feel her body language as she's listening to this. She's cringing. It's terrible. But Richard Nixon was a close friend of Golda Meir. They had a real mutual regard. In 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, uh, the bureaucrats in the Defense Department and the State Department do not want to bail out Israel when Israel is suddenly losing, when Egypt and Syria are doing much better than expected, and it's Nixon who says, "Send all the planes, send everything. I don't, no more pussyfooting around here. We're going to save Israel," and he overrode his own bureaucrats to do that. They saw this in Israel. He was he was a hero there uh, because he literally saved. Israel. So was he anti-Semitic in these conversations? Yes. Was he a friend of Israel? Yes. Who was his top national security advisor? Henry Kissinger was Jewish. Arthur Burns, the head of the Federal Reserve, was Jewish. William Sapphire, his chief speechwriter, was Jewish. He certainly, did he make, are there ugly moments when he makes Kissinger actually have to be a little anti-Semitic himself? Yes. It, it makes you cringe when you listen to it. Unbelievably complicated unbelievably complicated. I can't, I don't want to say that Nixon was an anti-Semite because I think he, I don't really believe that he was, but he sure sounded anti-Semitic on those tapes. Uh
1: Why does, in terms of the policies, uh, so when you teach this period, everyone is fascinated with opening relations with China and SALT 1, uh, that here this anti-communist does something dramatic. So you could imagine Something equivalent today, yeah, kind of a conservative Republican, open relations with Iran. Uh, why does he do it? Like, what, what drives him to make that really huge break in 72? Well, a couple of things. One is,
2: unlike most politicians, Nixon is well read, uh, partly because he doesn't like people. He wants to read. Uh, and so I, I asked to see, you know, most politicians don't read, most presidents don't have time to read. I asked to see Nixon's private library. It's, it exists out at it. Whittier, the next library. It's like a graduate student. He's reading political philosophy, Kant, uh, political biography, everything Churchill ever wrote, underlining, starring in the margin. He's a deeply well-read person. He used to say, I'm going to quote him now. I hate intellectuals. They're effeminate. I like talking to an athlete. He was a terrible athlete, but he was an intellectual. <laughs> and he and, and he likes to say, he would say, said, quote, No more Harvard bastards, none of them in my cabinet. His national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, was a Harvard professor. His chief domestic advisor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, was a Harvard professor. With Nixon, you always had to, as John Mitchell famously said about Nixon, watch what we do, not what we say. Nixon was a blurter. He blurted out a lot of stupid stuff. But that didn't actually mean that he was going to do it. Now, how does this all relate to China? He was deeply thoughtful about international affairs. He really spent a lot of time thinking about it, and he could see that the age of America as a great superpower was not going to last forever, and that China was out there, and we couldn't just ignore them. They were about to get nuclear weapons, and we had to bring them into the world stage, but better that we do it rather than wait for them to do it themselves or to do it with Russia. He also saw, or was looking for the angle, a chance to pit Russia against, Soviet Union against China, which he Fairly successfully did. He could see that they were actually enemies in many ways. And so he saw a balance of power, strategic gambit. And he, one reason why he hired Kissinger was he really thought these way He loved to talk about Metternich and the Congress of Vienna and, you know, quite intellectual conversations about balance of power politics. So there's a high intellectual, geostrategic, if you will, vision, vision thing going on. That's part of it. Part of it is he just liked to mess with his enemies to confound his enemies, to dazzle everybody by surprising them. He did this all the time. A related example, the environment. Nixon was not really a great environmentalist, but in 1970 the environmental movement's starting up, and uh, the Cayuga River in Cleveland's caught fire, and there's an oil spill off off of the coast of California, and Nixon sees Muskie, Senator Muskie, coming on as a leading in the environmental charge and thinks he's going to be the candidate in 72. And he, he decides he loves to confound his enemies. So to outflank Muskie, he does it from the left. Nixon starts the Environmental Protection Agency, creates it. To outflank, it's expedient, to outflank his Democratic foe. But, you know, it's, it's kind of cynical in a way, but it was pretty good for the environment. Nixon signs Clean Air, Clean Water Act. Typical Nixon. He does not invite Muskie to the signing ceremony. <laughs> a fairly classic case of Nixonian pettiness. But but you know he's maneuvering. So part of this is just confounding your enemies, outfoxing your enemies. Uh, it's the big, He loved the big play, and it's a it's a one hell of a big play. And he liked secrecy, and and uh, he liked using Kissinger to do this kind of stuff. So all those things came together. And it was it was it was and it became a phrase Nixon goes to China has now entered the vocabulary. I wish we had more I wish we had more statesmen today who
1: were willing to do something brave like that We've talked about Kissinger who are some of the other people he surrounded himself with in his inner circle What kinds of people were in the Oval Office?
2: Well HR Haldeman is another enigma as a chief of staff He spent his most time with Bob Haldeman who this crew-cut very Germanic looking severe guy Haldeman was a brilliant chief of staff in many ways. He really ran the paper flow. That was a very controlled White House. It was a good paper trail. I was, uh, I mean, you can make an argument that it was the best run White House until Watergate when it was the worst run White House. And he's the only president to be driven from office. Haldeman bears some responsibility for that. How this brilliant chief of staff could have participated in Watergate and let that happen is a mystery that I can't really resolve. Uh, I think, this is very pedestrian of me to say this, kind of a prosaic answer, he was tired. Holdman, it was at his, the beck and call of Nixon 24-7 for four years. Nixon was a demanding, difficult, bad boss in a lot of ways. And I think Haldeman was just strung out and tired and he let it, and... and Is where it gets more complicated. There was a paranoid atmosphere growing in the White House. Now the cause of this is partly you have to see the context for the times. A lot of you can remember what the late 60s were like in America, what the Vietnam War was like. It was a fraught, difficult time. And if you're President of the United States, in what time they're ringed by buses, the White House is ringed by buses, so that the anti-war demonstrators are not gonna storm the White House. I mean, that was the time we lived in. Martin Luther King is killed in 68. There are riots in, what was it, 65 American cities. It's a crazy, hot, angry, polarized time, and Nixon feels embattled, and he's in his little shell, he's in a little bubble surrounded by the buses. Now, that's an excuse, he carries it too far. He becomes too paranoid, He becomes too conflicted. Everybody's an enemy out there. He gets too caught up with it. But even paranoids have enemies. And he did have enemies. Not just the anti-war kids, but the Eastern Establishment. They hated him. They did. I was part of the Eastern Establishment. They hated Nixon. We hated Nixon. And we were out to get him at the Washington Post. We really were. Now, he was out to get us. He was trying to take the Post away, the Post's broadcast licenses. He was playing hardball. It was a rough game they were playing. My point is it was a very fraught, hot, conflicted, polarized time. We think this time is polarized.
1: Remember what it was like
2: in 1970 when people were burning cities and campuses.
1: So let's get to the last part of his presidency, Um, but take us back to the personality. So, So part of where we'll end up in Watergate is the atmosphere, and it's the polarization, and the battles of, of America. But then you're telling us also about his shyness and about him. Where does that dark side come from?
2: Yeah. I mean, where does the dark or side come Where is there from? a dark side? I no, no, mean, there's, there's a dark side. There's a dark side. It was the dark side, is, everybody knows the dark side. You can't miss it. Uh, you don't have to go to the movies. I mean, his dark side is just out there, it's scary. But there was also a lighter side. One of the things that really drew me to this book was I read early in the game that Nixon. Nixon, friendless though he was, the joke in his staff was his best friend was his yellow legal pad because he didn't want to talk to anybody. He would just make notes. But the notes he made late at night would say, talk about his aspirations, the person he wanted to be. And they would use word like, words like joy, joyful, and serene, and inspiring, and confident. This was the Nixon, this is the person he wanted to be. He was not that person. He couldn't sustain that. He couldn't do that, but he wanted to be that person. I was very affected uh, by an oral history from Julie Eisenhower's daughter, describing Nixon coming home at night. He would come through the door whistling, a little happy tune. He would put a show tune on the record player. He'd turn on all the lights, and he wanted to have happy conversation. Now, he wanted to be optimistic. He wanted to be upbeat. He, he I think, was locked in a terrible struggle with his demons, but he wanted to be a happier person. He could not sustain it. The demons got to him, particularly during Watergate. The last year, I think, was really ugly. Uh, He's not communicating with him. In fact, he's sort of on the paper trail, Nixon, because of Haldeman, there's an incredible paper trail of the Nixon presidency, daily, by minute by minute. You can follow his every movements. That October 1973, it just stops. The last year, there's nothing there. It's eerie. I don't know what the hell he was doing in the White House. For his last nine months. He's just alone and isolated. So it got really strange and sad at the end um, and his ghosts did get to him, but you feel for him. You know that famous story of him uh, and Henry Kissinger praying together, you know, this is a, it happened the last second to last night. I think it was second to last night. Nixon invites Kissinger in to pray with him. Nixon was a a Quaker, prayed every night. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't really follow organized troop. We don't think of Nixon as being a spiritual figure. He got on his knees every night and prayed. Uh, And he gets on his knees to pray with Kissinger. Kissinger goes back to his office and he's sweated through his shirt and he says to his staff, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. And the phone rings and it's Nixon asking him, please don't tell anybody about this. (laughs) Kissinger put, I think it was Eagleburger on the extension, and it was in the Washington Post in two days. That's the world that Nixon lived in. So yes, he's paranoid,
1: but, (laughs) you know. Was his White House, but this gets to kind of a fundamental, were were there things in your view that were different about his White House than others that preceded it? Was something going on, uh, whether you're talking about the break-in, whether you're talking about Cambodia, was he conducting presidential power in a way that was different than other presidents. Yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to give my usual wishy washy answer to this. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, sure. He, did he
2: abuse his power? Did he wiretap? Absolutely. Uh, should, he been, should he have been impeached and convicted for high crimes and misdemeanors? Yes. Did he cover up? Yes. You can hear him on the tape talking about, I know where we can get a million dollars for that. I mean, it's terrible. But uh, the historical context is important here. Let's take the Pentagon Papers. This is the best way to illustrate it. Pentagon Papers leak in uh, June 1971. And they don't even mention Richard Nixon. It's really an indictment of Democratic uh, uh, administrations for getting us into the Vietnam War. But Nixon's obsessed with leaks. He's actually running secret diplomacy to China at the time, and he cannot stand to have any leaks. And so he goes nuts, and he wants the FBI to investigate Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg, the guy who leaked him. Now, the FBI has been doing president's dirty work for years. J. Edgar Hoover stays in office by doing the dirty work of presidents and by spying on them, both getting secret files to blackmail presidents and by spying for presidents. LBJ used J. Edgar Hoover to spy on Democratic dissidents at the 1964 Democratic Convention. There are other examples. But by 1971, the wind is changing. The FBI is being sued for illegal wiretapping. And the courts are now suddenly checking executive power. The Warren Court, the liberal Warren Court's in there. They've discovered the Bill of Rights, Fourth Amendment. And Hoover, brilliant guy that he is, brilliant politician that he is, says, I'm not going to spy for presidents anymore. I'm getting out of that business. It's bad business for me, bad for my legacy, bad for the FBI. So Hoover and the FBI refuse Nixon's order to get Daniel Ellsberg, to spy on him and get stuff. So what does Nixon do? He goes in-house. He creates his own investigative unit called the Plumbers. Now the Plumbers have been made to be this evil group, and they did really terrible stuff breaking into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. That was a really criminal and terrible thing to do, but the Plumbers in my view were a bunch of stumble bums. You know, you know, E. Howard Hunt of the CIA had been dumped by the CIA on the White House. This is how bureaucracies actually work. They sold, the CIA sold E. Howard Hunt to the White House as another James Bond. He was a, ha- he was a loser, he was a hack. He had to help do the Bay of Pigs. They were getting rid of him. The, the FBI was dumping G. Gordon Liddy, dumped him on first on the Treasury Department that, who then dumped him on the White House. Those guys were failures. And they weren't pros. Their boss, in turn, in the White House was Eagle Krog, Eagle Bud Krog. His, Eagle Krog's nickname at the White House was Evil Krog. It was a joke. Eagle Krog was a Boy Scout, was actually an Eagle Scout, I think. And he was terrible at this kind of stuff. They were screw-ups. They botched the, uh, the raid on Ellsberg's office. They break into the Waterhouse. They got caught. Uh, so it's not like this brilliant, mastermind, sneaky move, which is what we think from the movies, they're a bunch of inept, incompetent people who get caught. Nixon didn't know any about any of that stuff. Now, Nixon does participate in the cover-up. That is true. But if you listen to the tapes, and I've spent a lot of time listening to them, I think if you were in my chair sitting there listening to him, you would not hear some evil, brilliant, criminal mastermind you would hear a confused, awkward, shy person who's overwhelmed, who, you know, he starts to ask about, he would ask Haldeman, well, what did Mitchell know? And Haldeman would sort of start to tell him, and then Nixon would back off. It's, it's not, Nixon's shy, he hates confrontation. This is very revealing. Nixon does not get everybody in one room to ask them what the hell happened until nine months after the break-in. It's too late. The cover-up's been going on for nine months and it's become a real cover-up. So it's ineptitude, it's not Profiles and Courage, Nixon sounds pretty bad in those tapes, but he's not a criminal mastermind at all. He's busy trying to end the Vietnam War. It's not like he doesn't have 10 other things going on. And he's in a bubble. He's not well served by Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Now, I feel like I'm making a lot of excuses for Nixon. I'm not. My point is simply that he's not a criminal mastermind. He's a sort of a sad figure at this time. Who's digging his own grave because he's paranoid about his enemies and he has no smart grown-up in the room to come to him and say Mr. President, we got to stop this now. We got to bring in the lawyers End it now. Nobody does that. Haldeman doesn't do it. Mitchell doesn't do it Ehrlichman doesn't do it and Nixon tragically cannot do it for
1: himself. And by the last year I mean summer of 73 onward is he governing? You said these were his darkest days. Is he, is, is he really. in charge of the White House? Not he really. He running the show. Not really. I mean, Haig is r- running it nominally, and Kissinger is running foreign
2: policy, uh, and pretty well, too. I mean, the, uh, the uh, Middle East peace shuttle starts at this time, and Kissinger's quite a... Now, Kissinger's a complicated figure here because Kissinger's taking credit. One of the things that drives Nixon nuts is that Kissinger takes credit for all, all, everything that goes right. Going to China was not Kissinger's idea. It was Nixon's idea. Kissinger brilliantly executed going to China, but when H.R. When Haldeman first told Kissinger, gee, the boss wants to go to China, Kissinger said, fat chance. He didn't think it was possible. So Nixon's hearing, this is, a, this is part of my world. Nixon used Kissinger to be his ambassador to Catherine Graham, to, to the Washington Post Company, to Georgetown, to the smart people in Georgetown. And Kissinger was a great success at it. Kissinger, who's probably appeared on this stage, and you're probably familiar with, is funny and charming and self-deprecating and brilliant. Nixon could no more do self-deprecation than fly to the moon. But Kissinger could do it, and he charmed Catherine Graham, and he charmed Joe Alsop, and he charmed all these people. Great, but he also made jokes about Nixon. He sold out Nixon. And Nixon, of course, found out about it. Of course, of course he did. And Nixon tried to be philosophical about it, and he'd say, well, there goes Henry To the end of the day. There goes Henry to leak to The Washington Post. And he tried to make a bad joke about it. There goes Henry to, you know, talk to his friends in the press. But it hurt. It hurt Nixon, and it made him more paranoid than he already was. That famous taping system that did so much damage, that's put in in 1971. Nixon had ripped out Johnson's taping system, but he puts one in. Why? It's clear from Haldeman's diary and other sources because of Kissinger. Kissinger's going around town bragging about his triumphs, and Nixon wants to be able to rebut Kissinger so that when they write their memoirs, there will be a record of whose idea going to China actually was. Yeah. And it's clear, there's, there's no question about this. This is why Nixon puts that system in. It's really to be able to rebut
1: Kissinger. Did he record everything, or did he selectively
2: record? It's all, it was all automatically recorded. Nixon was physically clumsy. He didn't know how to do, turn things on and off. So they made it, literally couldn't open the cap of an aspirin bottle. Uh, famously once when he was signing a bill, he dropped the top and every, the senators were all on their knees looking for it. And he stabbed himself with a pen. And I mean, he was just physically very awkward. So they had a voice activated system and it recorded
1: everything, everything. Yeah. And so toward the end, at some point, he shifts from a mentality of uh, fighting to a mentality of resignation. How does that happen? Ooh, I,
2: slowly and bitterly uh, and only really at the very end when they get the smoking gun uh, tape on him. And, he, you know, he changes his mind several times at the end. He thinks he's going to resign, no, he's going to fight, go out fighting, go out a fighter. But finally, really because he's a politician, he's counting votes. He didn't have the votes. He's going to lose in the House and he's going to lose in the Senator and Senate and he can, he can count the votes. He's lost. And so sadly, you know, one of the, tragedies of Richard Nixon was his marriage. Uh, that was we have that vision of Mrs. Nixon as drawn and sad. No, I, I ran a picture of her in my book. You can find it from 1953. She was a beauty. She was a knockout. Uh, Frank Gannon who ghost wrote Nixon's memoirs told me that uh, Nixon was like that guy in high school who couldn't believe his good luck in marrying the beautiful girl. He used to drive her in college, or not after college, when he was courting her, he drove her on dates with other men. He would read a book in a hotel lobby while she was on dates with other men, and then he'd drive her home. And, he find, and So he worshipped her, and she loved him. And several times when he was about to quit politics, even though she hates politics, she says, no, you can't do that, Richard. She knew him. She knew that he would be lost without politics. She stood by him. But of course by the very end, it's a strained marriage. They're both drinking too much. Even Julie says they're both drinking too much. And I was struck by this. When he decides to resign, he doesn't tell her. He tells Rosemary Woods, his secretary, to tell her. He's that distant from her by the end. But in classic Nixon fashion, he does repair his marriage. He does. They're, they're close for the last 20 years. They're, it's an old-fashioned marriage. Very, I talked to his housekeeper. He would hold the chair for her when she came down. It's a very, they, don't, they would not complain about their bodily ills to each other. It was an old-fashioned, very formal marriage. But it was a real love match. And if you want some proof of it, Google Pat Nixon funeral. Richard Nixon is not just crying. He's bawling. He is completely undone by the loss of his wife. A year later, he's dead. That was a real marriage, but you wouldn't. And during Watergate,
1: no marriage could have sustained Watergate. Did he feel bad about what happened to the country? So when you hear the David Frost interviews, many people are like, you know, he is just defiant. But did he feel bad about what the country went through? Boy, I sure looked for that. I really, really looked for it. I mean, in the Frost interviews, he
2: says, "I, I gave them the sword and they stuck it in and I would have done the same. And that's about as close as he came to admitting guilt. And even then was under pressure from his staff to do that. You won't find him admitting moral guilt. And I don't, I, but what, who knows what people think at four o'clock in the morning? And Nixon would say, I hope I didn't let you down. I mean, he knew that he had. And what's even sadder about this story, and there's so many things that are sad about it. Nixon was a patriot, a real patriot. I really loved his country. You know that little American flag thing? That started with Nixon. Uh, Nixon was thrilled by the American flag. But Nixon, I'm sorry to say, did as much as anybody to destroy faith in and politics and, and keep young people from going into government. This is a heartbreaking thing. Somebody who, Nixon devoted his whole life to public service. He got kicked out for a while and had to be a lawyer, didn't really want to do it, and wanted to get back into public service. But his life was committed to public service, but because of Watergate, it made people cynical about government and people in my generation, you know, people in a slightly older generation went in because of Kennedy. My generation didn't. Nixon bears some responsibility for that. To me, this is heartbreaking because Nixon really believed in, in, in service. He must have known that. Nixon had to have known that, and it had to have eaten at him from within. But what did he really think? You know, he was not the most self-aware guy in the world. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would go around uh, asking people, do you think Nixon was self-aware? And they would say, no, no, no. Brent Scowcroft said, no, but sometimes I think he took a peek. I think that's probably true. And, and then I asked uh, uh, James Schlesinger, who had been Nixon's uh, secretary of defense and CIA director, do you think Nixon was self-aware? And Schlesinger said, no. And then he looked out the window and he said, but who is? Good point. Particularly of very powerful people who have to be driven in order to be, you know, to really accomplish things, to get up in the morning and do stuff. You can't wake up in the morning thinking, God, I lost my car keys and I'm really not getting along with my daughter and, you know, I'm really not the good person and, you know, all the normal stuff that we do. You can't solve the world's problems if you're that way. You got to get up in the morning and I'm going to go to China, you know? (laughs) Uh, And that, and and so Nixon had that kind of drive, that kind of unbelievable, was it powered by insecurity? Yes, but it was a powerful drive. Did he examine himself? I wish he, I I mean, I wish he'd been more self-aware about his enemies. His last words as he's leaving the White House, last words are, you can hate your enemies, but if you do, they win, and then you destroy yourself. Whoa. Too late, (laughs) did it just occur to him? And I looked and looked for some signs of him having this epiphany beforehand and they're just, it's just not there. I I think maybe it was there at four o'clock in the morning when he's thinking but boy, you can search the written record and listen to those tapes, you're not gonna, you can find little tiny moments occasionally when he talks about the need for
1: know your weaknesses but man, they're far and few between. Let me ask one last question then we'll do Q and A. when did you start working covering politics?
2: Uh, at the Bergen Record in 19, after I graduated from college. And you moved to the Post I
1: mean, what, Well, what I, I went to law
2: school, and then I got out of law school, and I went to Time magazine.
1: Uh-huh. And that's 1978, seven, seven. So I, I guess my question is, going deep into this president in the White House, did it change some of the ways you at least thought about politics when you entered into the 70s and started covering this? you you think differently. Yeah, I
2: was, I mean, I had a a sour view of politics partly because of Richard Nixon. I was one of the Watergate generation, which was turned off by politics. And, you know, journalism, Watergate was great for journalism. It made people like me, who might otherwise have gone into government, want to go into journalism. I had an epiphany about this, uh, how far this had gone. In 1986, I got hired as a Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek. And so I, and every New Year's Eve, Sally Quinn, you all know who Sally Quinn is, she's married to Ben Bradley, who was the editor of the Washington Post, and she had a big house in Georgetown, and she would give a New Year's Eve party. And I, as an employee of the Washington Post company, went, and I noticed something, that all the sort of cool people, the socially comfortable people, were the journalists and the lawyers, the insecure people, were the politicians and statesmen, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state, they were the ones who were ill at ease. And I thought, what has happened here? And what had happened in Washington was the, the, the people were supposed to be the check on power, the, 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 the outsiders kind of watching to make sure the power behaved itself. They'd become the power. By 1986, the cool kids in town were the Washington Post. It was Ben Bradley. It was the Washington Post. And, and the, the public servants who had the nominal power were kind of supplicants to these people. Now, I'm... obviously I saw this in a particularly skewed setting, but there they all were standing there drinking their champagne and you could tell right away who was uncomfortable and ill at ease and who was cocky and sure of themselves. And it was the reverse of what it should have been.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, So there's there's two microphones. If you have a question, please come up to the microphone and uh, our request is Keep your question right to the point, short, and uh, and let's begin. I was wondering if you have had any reaction to your book from any member of the Nixon family, especially his daughters, because I know that Julie used to believe that a book called With Nixon by Ray Price was the most fair and balanced book about her father. I think if she read your book, she would say now that your book is the most fair and balanced book.
2: I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> she, I, I, she would still say Ray's book is fair and balanced and it's, more, it's friendlier than mine. This is my family history. Uh, I I wrote a book about Eisenhower, so I got to know David. David helped me a little bit with Julie. Julie actually sent me directions to her house. I got within a week of seeing her, and she canceled on me. Uh, And she later said, I think her feeling was, you know, what's the use? I can talk to this guy, but, you know, if you're Julie Nixon, you've been around this track so many times, and you've had so many reporters burn you and sell you out that I can see that she just didn't want to try one more time. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I don't know what she thinks of the book. I don't think she hates it, uh, but I don't doubt that she loves it either. Um, you know, it's imagine being Nixon's daughters, how hard that was. They, I, I remember reading that in 19, I guess when their dad is elected or nominated for the vice president, these little girls are at home with their grandmother and the reporters burst through the door, flashbulbs popping. You know, uh, they're, they're exposed at a very, or Nixon, this is a detail. Nixon cancels his subscription to the Washington Post in 1954 because he doesn't want his children to see the Herblock cartoons every day on the editorial page because they show daddy climbing out of the sewer. All right? Uh, so, you know, Herblock did hundreds of cartoons of Nixon, each more sinister. Than the last. This is the world the Nixon daughters grow up in. This is the exposure they have, and you know, <laughs> of course, they don't want to talk to reporters. Uh, so I think that's their attitude. I, I don't know, but I, the short answer is I haven't spoken to them, so I don't know. Thanks. You mentioned that um, that Nixon did so many things to counterbalance somebody else, the EPA to undermine uh, Muskie. Uh, goes to China maybe to undermine
3: um, um, his Secretary of State. Did he ever consider things simply because they were better for America?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Nixon was a very sophisticated guy who operated on many levels. Cynicism and political expedience was one. But his love of country was definitely another. This shows up in his diaries. Uh, You know, he cared about his, his country. He was in some very difficult situations, he inherited the Vietnam War. There were 550,000 Americans in Vietnam. He could have just, you know, come home, but I don't think actually, I think even if Bobby Kennedy had won in 1968, it wasn't going to be that simple. It was actually hard to untangle yourself from that war. We can argue about, we can spend hours arguing about whether he did it right, it took too long, a lot of people died, that's all true. But he is, cares about, he's not just being politically expedient, he cares about his country. He served his country for a long time in many different roles and I think loved his country. Was he a cynic? Yes. Was he uh, wickedly cynical sometimes? Yes. Uh, Did he make deals? All the time. Uh, Did he believe those deals were in the interests of the United States? Yes. Were they in the interests of Richard Nixon? Yes. Did he like there to be a confluence between the interests of Nixon and the United States? Yes. (laughs)
3: Uh, in your excellent book, you discuss that in '62, Eisenhower wanted Nixon to challenge the election because of the irregularities, I believe, in Illinois and Texas, and Nixon said no to his credit. Uh, in Jonathan Chaikin's book that you that you uh, cite in your book, he discusses the reason for Watergate and cites the fact that uh, Larry O'Brien, who was head of the DNC at the time, uh, and worked for Howard Hughes. Uh, knew that Howard Hughes had given a $100,000 loan to Nixon's brother, and Nixon said, get me stuff on Larry O'Brien, and that was, he calls that the genesis of Watergate. Could you comment on that, please?
2: Yeah, Nixon was obsessed with Larry O'Brien. Larry O'Brien was a Kennedy person, and Nixon was just completely obsessed with the Kennedys, having run against Jack and all that. And Nixon was always jealous of the opponent. He always thought the Democrats were actually, in fact, he thought the Kennedys were better at dirty tricks than he was. Uh, Not entirely wrong about that, actually. Well, you said he
3: was audited three times by Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy,
2: as attorney general, ordered Nixon's tax returns to be audited in 1961, 62, and 63. Uh, So where did Nixon get the idea of abusing the IRS to to attack his political enemies? Uh, And I think Nixon exaggerated how effective the Kennedys were at Dirty Tricks. But the Kennedys, I, I wrote a biography of Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy understood dirty tricks. Uh, he, he, he had some rough customers work, working for him. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what was it? I lost, I lost the thread. The uh,
3: comment on the Chaikin uh, statement that he was out, he did Watergate because he wanted, Watergate was done. Oh, yeah, when to he get said, Larry get O'Brien. me stuff on Larry yeah, he O'Brien. He was obsessed
2: with Larry O'Brien. I don't think he gave a direct, he did not give an order, break into the Watergate. No, he said, get, to get me stuff on him. He would rail about Larry O'Brien. God damn it, Larry O'Brien. You know, we got to get, get, you know, get, get, the, get him, get him. He would, he would say stuff like that. He was a blurter. Nixon was a, a blurter and his aides generally knew to regard his blurts and his rants as blurts and rants that should not be considered directives to, to, to do things. Uh, Henry Kissinger told me a story, first summer he's on duty, uh, there's a hijacked airplane that lands in Damascus and Nixon calls him up after having a couple of drinks with BB and says, bomb the airport. And Kissinger didn't know what to do. He gets on the phone with Mel Laird and that, they move the 6th Fleet around all night and, and in the morning they do nothing. And it's clear to, to oh, Nixon didn't mean it, you know. He's just, he's just blurting. Now, you can say that's a dangerous thing to blurt and bomb the airport. <laughs> I talked to a great length to Brent Scowcroft about this, and and it does sound. It sounds in this telling, it's a terrible story, but most of Nixon's aides understood that he didn't. He would have a drink or two. I, I, there's a whole another issue about the alcohol, which I'm uh, happy to talk about. But he was not a big drinker. He, but he had a low tolerance, and occasionally he would have a drink, and he would blurt things out. And his aides mostly knew not to do it, but not always. Sometimes they did do stupid things. Chuck Colson was an enabler and would work around Haldeman to do nasty things. That's one case. And the, the next level down, the John Dean level, those guys didn't, they, they would hear what the president wanted and they would do it, you know. So that got Nixon into, into trouble. Uh, Haldeman prided himself in not carrying out Nixon's petty, stupid orders. But even Haldeman got exhausted and started doing stupid things himself.
0: Um, you said um, earlier that there were no adults in the White House mm. that would um, tell, Nick, t- like, tell Nixon to stop doing the thing before it was too late. Why do you, th- why do you think that was? Like,
2: well, Nixon was a loner and he liked to have people he just trusted around him he was hoping that John Mitchell would be, be that sort of grown-up in the room. John Mitchell had been his law partner, and uh, Nixon looked up to him. He brought him in, made him attorney general. And actually, Mitchell, this is, shows you how complicated this story is. Mitchell was, early in the game, a check on doing abusive things. Uh, a, a young la- aide named uh, Tom Euston came up with something called the Houston Plan in the spring of 1970, which called for all sorts of eavesdropping and wiretapping and spying. It was a bad plan. And Hoover didn't want to do it, partly for bureaucratic reasons. But Mitchell, the Attorney General, said, we're not doing that. Uh, That was a moment where there was a grown-up in the room to say, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. But by 1972, 73, Mitchell is sick of politics. He hasn't been a very good Attorney General. He's, his wife is a drunk and crazy, and uh, Mitchell himself is drinking too much, and Mitchell's distracted and wants to go back and be a bond lawyer in New York again and takes his eye off the ball, and he's early himself implicated in Watergate. So Nixon is deprived of the grown-up in the room, so to speak. Uh, Mitchell is not that for him, can't be that for him, and it's very too bad for, for Nixon that, that that Mitchell was not around to tell him uh, not to do dumb things. All presidents need people like this. They rarely have them. They used to try to bring in Bob Strauss. Democrats would bring in Bob Strauss to try to play this role. But Bob Strauss is pretty funny about this. These are the problems of being a president. Bob Strauss, many of you know who he was. He was a Democratic elder, elder statesman lawyer in Washington, advised Johnson. And Strauss once told me, he said, you know, people would come to me and say, I want to go to the president, and I want to go to the awful office and tell him, you know, to, this is what he has to do. So Strauss would say, okay, we'll bring him in. And the guy coming in and say, like, I'm going to tell that son of a bitch what to do. And then he'd get into the white, Oval Office and he'd say, oh, Mr. President, you're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way it is in the Oval Office because people are scared of the office. They freeze up. They're awed by power. Uh, I mean, I've, I've interviewed people in the Oval Office, and it's awesome. It's meant to be awesome. You, you're, it's supposed to be an awesome place. And you walk in there and you're kind of, whoa. And, uh, you know, my tough questions would kind of turn into kind of meek (laughs) questions. Uh, Yeah, I was just wondering whether Nixon would even be accepted today
3: in the Republican Party. After all, he considered himself a Keynesian, I believe. He put in wage and price controls, and he wanted to have a national health program, which, if anything, was even
2: better than Obamacare. Correct. Correct. Uh, No, he would. You know, he was he was a probably a moderate Republican. Something he doesn't exist anymore. Really, much maybe a few people in this room, but you know, there aren't too many of them around. So he would be drummed out of the Republican Party today as a liberal. Uh, He passed a lot of liberal legislation, a lot of social welfare legislation. This is an interesting thing, though, and I tried to capture this in my book. Times change. He lived in an activist age. In 1970, people believed in government. Even Republicans believed in government in 1970. There was this sense, for better or for worse, that the federal government and the government generally could make lives better. And conservatives didn't want to do less of that maybe than Democrats, but conservatives wanted to do it too. And they were activists. Nixon wanted to do things. He got up in the morning, he wanted to do things. He wanted to pass legislation. He formed floating Congress was democratic control and Nixon would Nixon was the first president in 100 years to have the other party control both houses of Congress. Nixon made deals with them all the time. They, they made these floating coalitions and a lot of it was semi-liberal legislation like all that environmental legislation got got passed. In that era that was not so strange. That's a lot of southern democrats who don't really exist anymore would make deals with Actually, Julian wrote about this uh, in uh, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, uh, 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 you know, deals were made between odd bedfellows, uh, Southern Democrats and and liberal Republicans. And and that was that age is gone. You know, look at Congress today. It's just not happening now. But that was the world in which
1: Nixon lived. Hi. um, So why do you think. Spiro Agnew is described as being one of the worst, or if not the worst, vice president of all time. So, because he was. Because he was. <laughs> Why do you think that um, Nixon chose him to be his vice president, and what was their relationship like?
2: Uh, he was purely expedient. Uh, uh, this is back to Republicans. He was a moderate Republican. Nixon wanted a mid-Atlantic moderate Republican to balance the ticket. Nixon from, being from California. He was a good-looking guy. He had presence. He was Greek, so you could get some ethnic votes there. Uh, he was he said stood up to some black militants and like that about him. So he was checking, you know Just checklists checking checking the list, but he barely knew him once he brought him in he thought he was an idiot and uh, <laughs> Rarely talked to him. They, they, t- they took away his office and gave it to Haldeman pushed him back into the EOB uh, The only thing he used them for was when he wanted to chastise the press he brought him out and he gave, sent out William Sapphire and Buchanan, his own speechwriter, who sent him out to do those famous alliterative speeches about the nattering nabobs of negativity. Remember that? And so he used Agnew as a hatchet man, as Eisenhower had used him as a hatchet man to attack his enemies. But once uh, he discovered, once he learned from the justice department, that Agnew was taking bags of cash, brown paper bags full of cash from Maryland contractors, uh, the end game had come, and they they got rid of
1: them. final question:
3: um, What was your sense of uh, President Nixon's relations with the conservative wing of his own party, especially on matters of economic policy, given yeah. wage-price controls, yeah. the gold standard, yeah. things like that? Yes,
0: uh,
2: uh, Nixon was not that great on economics. I, I said he was well-read and thoughtful. He had a weird blind spot on economics. He was very too political about it. He generally believed the job of the Federal Reserve was to keep interest rates low so that the economy would be booming enough so that he could get reelected. That was his view of economics. And it led him into wage and price controls, which was the single stupidest thing he did other than Watergate. Because, as Nixon himself admitted in his own memoirs, you could wage and price controls, you can hold inflation down for a while, but once you take them off, kaboom! as Nixon wrote, the paper must be paid and it set the stage for 10 years of stagflation. It was a tremendous political mistake to do that. Nixon, again, thought he was confounding his enemies. Congress had passed, had given the president authority to do wage and price controls, figuring he'd never use it because the Republican, they figured he wouldn't do it. Nixon said, I'll show them, I'll do it. There's a complicated background. We were getting up the gold standard and Nixon was worried about inflation because we're going off the gold standard, the dollar's going to be weaker. What he should have done is told his Federal Reserve Chairman raise interest rates to keep inflation from getting out of hand, but he was against higher inflation rates because he wanted to get reelected in 72. Instead, they put in wage and price controls. Big mistake.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Um, Evan, Evan Thomas, Julian Zeltzer, thank you so much. That was a really wonderful talk. And um, I just want to remind everyone that the books are for sale. We have uh, Being Nixon for Sale as well as, as uh, Julian's future Urgency of Now. They're both in the museum store on our 77th Street side. They're going to be signing books right by our Central Park West side. So please join us for that. Thank you again.